Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Pod Network Entertainment. In, um, during the pandemic was launching the very first online community fabric store. So we're the first online store in the Philippines that sells Filipino textiles. And it was amazing. It really gave such a huge sense of ownership among the artisans. They were so proud to see their beautiful fabrics on a website. And it worked. Like a lot of the diaspora community in the US, in Australia, in the UK, we're now buying fabrics because it's accessible and they're transforming it into different things. And good evening, good afternoon, good morning to wherever you're watching or listening to this podcast from here in the Philippines and from all over the world. And welcome to my podcast, the RJ Ledesma Podcast. Now in this podcast, I like, I love actually speaking to pioneering, trailblazing entrepreneurs from the Philippines and, of course, from all over the world, the Philippine diaspora, to learn more about their success secrets when it comes to businesses. Can we replicate those success secrets? How do they think about doing business? And more importantly, what business opportunities do they see emerging in this new, new normal scenario? Now, do you know anybody whom you would like me to feature here on this program because they're great entrepreneurs as well or business people? Please let me know. I would love to learn from them. At the same time, you're also live right now on YouTube. Now, tonight's guest is another Ramon V. Del Rosario 2023 Club awardee. We're very happy to have her over here, especially because of the efforts that she's doing for our indigenous communities when it comes to fashion. We have here right now the visionary leader of Ant Hill. Ant Hill stands for Alternative Nest and Training slash Training Hub for Indigenous Little Livelihood Seekers. So that's Anthill. And this enterprise was born out of a deep commitment to address the prevalent issues of poverty and unemployment faced by the marginalized sectors, particularly amongst our indigenous community. This was put together by Joy Anya Lim, who is listening, who's joining us all the way from Cebu. Joy, welcome to the program. Welcome to the RG Adesma podcast. Hello, thanks for having us, RJ, and giving us a platform to share our story. So great to have you. Maayong gabi sa inyo tanan. Maayong gabi, yes, indeed. Thanks, thanks for so much for joining us. So uh, let's get straight into it. Can you help me better appreciate, love, um, what is Antil all about in a nutshell? I mean, I, I talked about it. It's a bit complicated, but usually like what they say when, they, when you go to a startup and you make a pitch, they say, what's the most basic pitch for people to understand what Antil is all about? 
Yeah, basically, we are a social and a cultural enterprise with a mission to provide sustainable livelihood to our craft artisans. And we do this by applying our weaves, our Philippine textiles, into contemporary and circular design, like what we're doing. And also by building their entrepreneurial capacity so they can run their businesses independently and become self-reliant. Got that. So I guess what you're, what you're wearing right now, from the necklace to the outfit, are those all from Antip? Wow, yes. Yeah, so this one represents circularity. So these are scraps, mga retaso. Um, and this is a design by uh, Tropique Bitnik. And then this one is a contemporary terno. Okay, sorry. For those who are approaching the term the first time, what do you mean by circularity when it comes to your to your necklace? Or to your, rather, to your uh, so earrings. Yeah, so circularity is a movement or a practice wherein we extend the life cycle of the product. So instead of like the textiles going to a dump site and becoming waste and contributing to pollution, we extend the product life cycle and up upgrade it, like elevate the value of it. So we upcycle it. So this could have just been, you know, pieces of off cuts and end cuts, but now it's like a pretty earring, you know, that you can wear. Got that. And then for the dress in particular, is there anything upcycled uh, about it or, or sustainable about it? Or it's because it's also something that is uh, from indigenous uh, community? So apart from it being uh, a, a pattern that's indigenous to Itneg communities or the Abra community, uh, they also use um, discarded thread. So these big, big um, thread manufacturers like Monaco and Apple, they discard or they just throw away thread that they can't anymore use. And then our artisans, our community, they buy this thread per kilo and that's what they use as input material in the textiles. And also very recently, I mean, you've been around since 2010, but just this year, you won in the RBR or Ramon B. Del Rosario Ciclab Awards. Uh, what exactly is the award and, and why do you feel for yourself it's such an achievement for you? I mean, of course, it's a great award, right? So all awards are, you know, feel really great, but in this particular, this one, why, why does it resonate with you, this award? Yeah, well, it's, well, personally, because Ramon Vidal Rosario is, like, I think, is the epitome and lives the essence of, of leadership and entrepreneurship, but particularly around impact entrepreneurship and innovation. And that's our shared value. Uh, we use our platform, our business, our enterprise to contribute to nation building. And we're also in our, in our values, we're very committed to impact. And we do that by innovating a lot of things within the business. Um, to me personally, it was such an honor because I was the only woman awardee and it's good oh, to bro. be able, yeah, I think it's good to be able to um, recognize the power of women and economic empowerment. And there's a lot of women out there investing in providing economic opportunities to other women. And also, we know for a fact that when you invest in women, there's a multiplier effect to their families and to the communities. And Personally, I think coming from the pandemic, it was such a good validation for us. Um, and it reignited the sick club in us also. It fueled kind of our passion to know to, to be committed, um, to our purpose and to stay, to stay and endure the course of, of our business journey. Yeah. I, I can really, uh, relate to you saying how, how sometimes the, the pandemic either validates or strengthens if you believe 
that there's a higher purpose to the business which you are doing. Like, just to share with you the example of my own business together with my wife, Vanessa, for Mercato Central. You know, we're an outdoor food market and we had to close everything down, right? So that meant that, you know, um, if we had no other purpose than just throwing a food market, then, then you know, that's it. Let's look for another business. But the higher purpose for us was to say, there are people whose livelihoods depend on us being able mm. to operate a market which allows for small food entrepreneurs to grow. And that's, we try to find different ways and means to, to reignite the business, yeah. to reestablish yeah. the business. And you discover, I guess, new business models uh, as it comes around. And I just wanted to share one more thing with you, which I found very important for me is that um, it's also very important for me to focus on, on women entrepreneurs because uh, like for myself, I, I have a, I have a daughter who's 14 years old and I always want to make sure that, you know, her mom is a role model for her because her mom is a strong entrepreneur. But I wanted to see that there are so many strong female entrepreneurs who can change the world by what they're doing. So very happy to have you here uh, on the program. And just to unpack a bit, you know, there's a lot that you said, no, like uh, I have to uh, unpack a lot about impact entrepreneurs uh, and impact investors. There's a lot of, terminologies that some people are encountering for the first time over here. And I guess that's due to the fact that what you are is what we call a social enterprise, right? And much of what we've had here on the show are startups. And when people uh, understand that startups are being sort of businesses which are able to scale through the help of technology, right? But at the same time, as they scale, they're able to uh, get a lot of what we call venture capitalists to invest in the company to scale very fast. Um, and that, I mean, that's putting it in, in, that's simplifying it a bit too much, no? but that's basically it. it. These are tech startups, right? But then yeah. you are a social enterprise and maybe people are still sort of struggling with what, what a social enterprise means. Can you help break us down, break it down for us? What would be the primary difference between what is a startup, I guess, and what is a social enterprise? Yes. Um, so a social enterprise is like any other business, um, but the difference is it, use, it uses business strategies to address a social issue. So I think when I explain it to people, there's always three elements to a social enterprise that kind of sets it apart from a traditional business or a startup. So one is where our core, our core mission actually revolves around um, providing a solution to a social problem. So, and second is it has to be impact driven, right? So we have to be very clear about how are we going to use business strategies, innovations, creativity to actually address and help solve this social issue and create positive impact. Number three, um, social enterprises have to be very committed to sustainability. You know, we have to be able to look at how we're able to access responsible profit because like any other business, we have to be able to be profitable so we can reinvest our profits in addressing the social issue. And then lastly, um, social enterprises are known to be very creative and innovative because it's a different, it's an alternative form of business. It's not the traditional way of doing business. And so you have to find means on how you can achieve your metrics, impact impact metrics, and also your business metrics at the same time. But on top of being a social enterprise, Anthill is also a cultural enterprise. So we're very sensitive and we look at how culture is elevated, how culture is consumed, and how culture is produced within the context of weaving. 
Wow, then as you know, as you keep on talking to me, a lot of a lot of questions spring to mind. And I think it's very important that, that we're able to ask these questions. That well, first of all, um uh in your own background, did you ever explore can, can I ask what your background is first of all? Is it entrepreneurship or were you into fashion or were you into social work? Can help me understand better what informed your decision to become to put together Anthill. Thank you. No, my undergrad was in advertising and economics, um, but I'm not into fashion. I'm not a fashion designer. That's always a misconception. And and it may seem like Antil is a fashion brand, but really at the core of our work is community building and community development. Um, I had a very short stint in corporate. I used to work for Unilever, but then I it wasn't for me, and I readily jumped on into the development sector. So I used to do fundraising racing and resource mobilization and advocacy communications. And I think that's really what got me into thinking about, um, you know, social change, how I can create social change. But my family, my parents are both in the textile business. So I grew up around fashion. And my mom also is a volunteer. Like she used to do a lot of volunteer work in her university days. And so I grew up with that kind of um, values surrounded with that kind of values and upbringing. And I was very much immersed in um, the way she worked and the way she also was very much immersed in indigenous communities. So I was very drawn to understanding our um, indigenous communities. I was very drawn to understanding our weaving culture. And at a very young age, my parents would take us to visit these weaving villages. So I think that's where I first um, experienced or saw firsthand the problem that existed in our weaving communities, being that uh, it was only among elders, like puros matatanda na yung nagahabi, walang younger generation who are wanting to learn the craft. And so there was a gap in in cultural continuity. There was a gap in, in not, not, there was a challenge or a barrier in ensuring that the craft is passed on to the younger generation. And, and as you as you tell me this one, it just makes me very curious. And I hope you don't mind. Uh, I don't mean to uh, sound like I, I, I'm, I'm saying it's stereotypical, but usually, I mean, you're you're a, you're Filipino Chinese, so you should yes. be the assumption it's a textile business. So you should be the assumption that the business has to has to be profitable. I mean, you know, it doesn't um, profit first before. I mean, yeah, the profit, profit, but then. It seems to me that your parents uh, were able to 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 help you see your particularly your mom was able to help you see other alternatives to just merely you know relying on the textile business and and seeing it purely as a, a profit play. Am I am I right? I've never actually shared this in public, but um, yeah. So obviously, my parents, being Filipino Chinese, expected me to take over the family business, and um, you know, in the past, we would be compelled to like spend summer and working at the store to just understand how it goes. Come on. Common story. I've got so many Filipino Chinese. I mean, it's very same experience. Yeah. And it, it comes to springboard, but to start up, but yours is a springboard to social enterprise. For me, it's a bit, you know, it, it's a bit refreshing and also a bit different. Yeah. I think, I think that's a lot of my mom's doing, but you know, as co-founder, so my mom was co-founder, and because I guess she was able to build her life around a traditional business. When I started Ant Hill, with her, ano naman, with her and 
encouragement. There was still a struggle in terms of how do we operate the business because when we started Anthill, I was very, very keen and very focused on making sure that we build the capacity of the community first and we focus on the program we were running in the communities. Whereas my mom was saying, dapat kumikita ha na. You have to be profitable. You have to have inventory. You, you can't just focus so much of your time and energy in the program. So actually, my mom and I had a lot of arguments. Um, and it took a while for me to, I guess, understand the value of profit in a responsible manner. Um, I was very reluctant. Or I, I had a different relationship then with, with money or profit, given that I, I came from a development background. That's right. And, and, and that's another question that actually, I, I hope you don't mind it because they do yeah, no, each other. The, the idea is that actually profitability in a social enterprise, because for me, what, what not it's it, it with rather with some trepidation, the uh, I'm trained also professionally, right? So to do yes. a business, really sure it's profitable, but you're worried about sometimes social enterprise because it's saying like, Oh, you shouldn't be making really a profit because it's a social enterprise, or your profit should be capped at a certain rate lang because it's a social enterprise. Is that how to correctly understand profitability at social enterprise? What what is it? What is it to you guys? Yeah, it's a bit exciting here right now because as we await uh, as she answers that question, I think. Uh, there's a challenge with the internet coming from Cebu. So it's going to come back in just a bit. And again, we're listening here right now to uh, Joy Anyalim all the way from Cebu with regard to Antil, which is her social enterprise. It stands for Alternative Nest and Trading, Training Hub for Indigenous Little Livelihood Seekers. That's Antil. Uh, and like she was saying, she came from the first corporate and went into the development sector after that one. Just to let you know, uh, Anya Lim recognized the inherent value of weaving and the craft industry providing sustainable livelihoods for the indigenous people. Um, however, because of the lack of market access, uh, production capacity, and the demand, there was very low profitability. And so many people are forced to go to the city. So many people, they actually lose the craft in the process because they all go to the city. Uh, as a result of that one, it sort of crystallized what Antil was supposed to do and what the mission was supposed to be. And the mission of Antil was to be able to harness this untapped potential of these undervalued weaving and craft skills. So let's keep them, of course, in their provinces. And more importantly, as we keep them in the provinces, we try to create sustainable livelihoods for them. But at the same time, and more importantly, like she was saying, part of the measure of the success of their business is cultural metrics. And one of the best ways to preserve cultural metrics is to, prefer, uh, to, pres- to preserve the rich traditions and craft processes of these different indigenous communities. I am. So again, let's welcome back uh, Anya over here. So Anya. Uh, Sorry, I got disconnected. Yeah. No, no worries. No worries. We want to go back again to ask you about, you know, what's the relationship between how should we feel about profitability in a social enterprise? How should we perceive it to be? Yes. Um, so it took me a while to get to the level where I have to embrace it as an entrepreneur. I think, I think because I came from development sec- from the development sector and technically we're still in the development sector. Um, I was a very reluctant entrepreneur. So I had a very weird distant relationship with like profit. But then I think throughout, um, like through the years, because I used to do fundraising, when I embraced what entrepreneurship meant and 
how social entrepreneurship how responsible profit is able to create impact in the in the work that we do um then i was very 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 um determined that as a social entrepreneur we're not going to rely on grants we're going to establish a very strong business model that will actually be profitable for us to be independent and to be able to sustain the business and use our profits reinvest it in the communities in the programs that we facilitate in the communities so if you're a social enterprise or if you're wanting to become a social entrepreneur or establish a social enterprise it's very very important to be able to have profit but to facilitate that in a responsible manner because you're not able to care for the planet or the people if you do not have this first p if you don't have profit you're not able to sustain the business nor are you able to actually create positive impact and if you're not able to do both then you're not a social enterprise are you supposed to limit your profitability i mean sometimes i have to ask like oh yeah i can't make it go above or below or uh let me understand if you don't mind no i, I no, yes no i i do not think you should i it doesn't make business sense for one to cap off their profit right so um like any other traditional business You have to constantly aim high. Hindi mo naman pwedeng sabihin, okay, um by next year I'm not going to be able to grow already. Like the 20% growth in my profit is enough. That's it. I'm just gonna I'm not I'm just going to aim for that. I mean that means that you're not actually also you're limiting you're limiting your capacity to grow um within the context of social entrepreneurship the mindset is the more profit the more you're able to actually scale your impact so the more profit the more positive impact you're able to create to your beneficiaries or your to the partner communities you work with really great and you hear right now commenting here on the page is Eva Rasul Bernardo he is the guy behind Parkworks hi Eva hi Eva how are you doing and hi, Eva. love local so uh, for people listening here right to the show um Eva is the same guy Papworks is also doing the app Sari which is helping many of our Sari Sari store mom uh, small store owners especially the mom the mamas out there and the people out there saying Antilas beautifully crafted products thanks so much Eva for dropping by thank you so We're much we're showing some of their websites later on and featuring um, some of their products here on the show um having said that no Oh, I want to say hi also as well to the host. He's also the host of Two Nine Rider on the podcast network. So he's one of our hosts here also on Podcast Network Asia. So um, let's 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 go back now. I like what you said first of all that as a um, social entrepreneur, you're still there to solve other people's problems, right? That's the basic entrepreneurial mindset. You're solving other people's problems, but your solution is solving a social problem, right? So. Um, How do you identify what was that biggest problem that you want to solve? Because sir, when you're in fundraising and development, chamber, and damning mga issues that you wanted, what brought you particularly to the issue that you wanted to solve? I think you mentioned it earlier. Um, a couple of things because back then, I think what really resonated with me is um, like the poverty of identity among young Filipinos, like. The tra- the traditional textiles were largely used for bed covers, um, um, linen, tableware, and they're only worn on special occasions. Linggo ng wika, if you need to attend a conference and you're required to wear your traditional attire. And then 
we mistake we mistakenly call it costume where in fact culture is not costume um and so wearing something na curtain or bed cover is perceived badway or uncool and i think i think i resonated with that like i wanted that to change because my mom would talk about these beautiful textiles and you know it was always a joy to wear them and my thinking then is i want my future daughter and the future generations to still be able to wear this and when when i started immersing myself in these different communities it was the same um the same attitude even among younger weavers or younger women in the communities they don't find the relevance of learning the craft they don't see it as something that could put food on the table or something that they even call a profession they themselves undervalue the craft and it's so sad because they're taken advantage by a lot of middlemen and they're paid very low um and a lot of them as you mentioned earlier choose to like leave the countryside and go to the city compromising family dynamics and everything so all this kind of just piled up together and and i felt like women are not women in the countryside women in indigenous communities are not really given economic opportunities that they can own and that they can see as potentially something that could give them a brighter future so you identify the problem how do you want to solve it now Yes. So initially, we were brainstorming and thinking. So we have to show to everyone that people can actually wear weaves. That you know we can apply them in fun designs where people can wear it. Because we were thinking, what would make weavers weave the textile every day? If we're looking at sustainable livelihood, then it means that we have to increase their production capacity their productivity for more people to want to weave it we have to increase the demand and initially we had we collaborated with young designers and applied the weaves in um party wear you know kasi noon nung noon also yung gimmick diba para okay let's apply it in in party wear and then it didn't work it failed actually our first idea failed it still is a it still is a special occasion so we had to go back to the drawing board and think again like really understand the consumer insight right like if you're wanting for it to be of high demand where do how do people shop where do they spend their money when they buy clothes and we we saw that a lot of women invest in clothes for workwear so they it's something that they have to wear every day so that's kind of like the light bulb moment happened so we then decided okay we're going to uh, uh use these textiles but in contemporary workwear something that they can mix and match wear to work day to night and then that's when it clicked and that's when we were able to build a community or a movement of proud weavers as we call it great and that's so really uh, what i want to underscore by what you said is that it's really a process of iteration sometimes you've got uh, you want to solve a problem but it takes several several iterations <laughs> until you actually get to what problem should how, how to solve the problem in the most ideal fashion is that correct is that the correct understanding Yes, it doesn't happen in a snap. I mean, it's a process of really putting yourself in the shoes of your target customer, your target market, and then understanding, finding a match, finding a fit to your problem and to the needs of the customers, right? 
And having said that, no, um, let's talk a bit more about business model, just because I think it's key for people to understand how Anthill actually makes money because it's not something easily figured out. And just for people who need to understand business models, basically, how does the business make money, right? Um, and, and how did you figure out what was the best business model that would work for Anthill? Maybe you can take us through what happened until you finally got to say, okay, this is how it's going to make money and hopefully make money sustainably. Yes. Um, so the way we kind of figure that out is by experimenting on a lot of design. So it was a hit and miss also. And I don't know, I think all startups um, go through this phase where you kind of just keep on prototyping different products and see what would work in the market. So as I mentioned, for apparel, we were doing workwear and this was initially targeted towards um, the retail customers, so business to consumers. And then as we were doing that, we also kind of explored and thought, oh, we could actually push this for uniforms. If we are looking at workwear, why can't we push the use of our fabrics for um, uniforms, for hotels, for offices, for teachers? So we were looking also at business to business channels. Um, but for us to be able to um, kind of reach to reach this market, reach both these revenue channels, B2B and B2C, the, the, the first point in our ecosystem model. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are the weavers or are the artisans? And we needed to build their capacity first because we can't be putting ourselves out there and creating demand if we're not able to really um, commit to the supply, right? So in our ecosystem model, at the core of it really is our artisans. And the reason why Antil was able to scale and serve these customers is we invested so much in building the capacity of the artisans and we expanded and built relationships with so many weaving communities across the country. So from there, that's one stakeholder, one community. We then worked on having a network of designers, so design collaborators and designers, because that's not really our strength. We can't, we can't do everything, right? We can't do clothes, bags, accessories, everything to show how our weaves can be um, turned into finished goods. So our design collaborators are the second most important stakeholder also in the ecosystem model. And then third is we, we also ensure that these designs are brought to life. So we also have to work with mga seamstresses, bag makers, um, shoemakers. 
So that's also kind of the third um, stakeholder before it reaches our customers. So that's kind of how Anthill works. From the from the raw material, from the textiles, from the weaving artisans, to the designers, to production partners, and then to the customer. So on top of us buying or procuring raw materials from these artisans, what sets Antil apart is we have a layer of relationship with these artisans and we invest in what we call our community enterprise development program. So we help them become entrepreneurial too. I like Ivan to see Ivan Handog saying over here, you, the designs are so good. Uh, thanks so much, Ivan, for chiming in. Yay, maraming salamat, Ivan. Yeah. Uh, th- thanks so much for sharing with us, Ivan. Um, and aside from that one, um, what interests me right now is as you're building that ecosystem, what was what was fueling the the operation? Because to me right now, you're, you're putting it together, but uh, where was the, in other words, where was the money coming from? Were you, were you, were you bootstrapping? Bootstrapping meaning it was coming out of your own pocket. For those who don't know what bootstrapping means, it was coming out of your own pocket. Were you still working with that development mentality where you were getting grants? Because to build the ecosystem and to continue doing business while you're learning, it's like you're juggling two balls at the same time. How, how did you fund it as you were developing the ecosystem? Yeah, so no, it was really hardcore bootstrapping. So the investment came from my mom and myself. And then the rest, the first few years were really um, working with a very lean but mean team. And we just got very lucky because we focused really on growing our business to business channels so that we're able to have a huge cash flow that we can roll. And I think what changed the course of Antil's business was when we worked with Bose Coffee. So Bose Coffee is our very first social procurement partner. Yeah. So Sir Steve is my mentor and I also worked with Bose Coffee um, for a certain time. And when they rebranded Bose Coffee and wanted to expand to um, the rest of the country and even outside the country, he really wanted it to embrace its homegrown DNA. And we met and I pitched to him the value of social procurement and what it can create in terms of the ripple effect it has to our grassroots communities. And yeah, and then he just shared that vision and that value. And so in 2015, we dressed all of most coffee stores um, mm-hmm. when we did the renovation. So in their interiors, all the fabrics in their upholstery are from Ant Hill's community partners. And then their baristas wear a patch of scrap weave on their shirt and on their aprons now. So, and, and it was such a good partner to have because Every time they grew and they opened the store, it also benefited until it allowed us to keep growing our partner communities. And so that was like a very good example of a long-term partnership. And since that, we started looking for similar partners that could allow us to grow. Uh, I, I, I know this is, this is truly incredible, the story. And it takes a lot of persistence, I guess, to reach out to each of these uh, weavers in different, because it's not, I guess you're Cebu-based, right? But you, you're not only representing Cebu-based weavers, you're representing weavers from, um, what are the different parts of the, of the country which weavers you represent? 
All over. So we work in Abra, so Ilocos, in, in the Ilocos region, we have um, in Abra and in Bigan. And then in the Cordillera region, we have about four communities. We also work in Mindoro. And then um, in the Visayas region, we have partners. In, and then in um, Negros. And then in Mindanao, we have in Bukidnon, in South Cotabato, in Basilan, in Maguindanao. So we're currently working with 20 partner communities. So yes, I think that's really the more, more challenging part of the business, I would I know, say. I, it's I, you working with the artisans. Really, that, that kind of stressed me out because I think, wow, she's, <laughs> the logistics here must be crazy. I, I even mind, like, what yeah. is for this one work? Do you... Do you have a centralized warehouse to put together everything so that the designers can create a, a design which they can market? How, how exactly does it work? Yeah, it took us a while to establish a system, but um, because of my background in community development, I think we're able to really build a very strong relationship and a very strong structure in the partner communities that we work with. So when we come into the community, we establish the leadership and governance structure of the um, enterprises that we work with. So the way Antil works is we work with a community leader and then the community manager. So they are our point persons. So when we do our training programs, it's primarily focused on them and then they train the rest of the artisans. Um, and we in, initially, I mean, it, it takes a while. It take, It's a lot of time and energy and presence that you need to invest in these communities for you to be able to establish a good relationship and in the past, we would do field visits every quarter just so we are able to establish a trust, just so they are able to understand supply chain standards. They're able to also value why it's important for them to professionalize. Mm-hmm. Got that. Um, okay. So, yeah. So, uh, that takes that took a lot of work. But, but then, how, how about, let's say, when the products are produced, what's, how's the supply chain like? Do they send all the products to Cebu, where you are? Is it centralized? Uh, or, or is it out of, yes. the, out of their own places and they, they keep it there and they just drop ship it to the, to the client? Yeah, so uh, it, it, it varies depending on um, the needs. So usually, we either give them the liberty to design and choose the colors, um, second is we have like specific colors depending on market trends that we ask them to weave. Or third, if it's a corporate account, then the design and the colors come from the client. And then, yes, yeah, so they ship it to Anthill and we manage the, the shipping or the production to finished goods before we ship them to, to the client. So that's kind of how the supply chain works. So it's a lot of overhead costs and logistics costs. And basically the, I guess the business model over here is when you sell the final product, the value add is the, the design and, and the marketing that, that gets shipped out. That's, that's the sort of like the, the margins that you have over there it comes from that one. Yes. Um, with the, with our, with our margins, um, the design puts a premium to the end product, but also the fa- fabric itself is a premium um, product in itself, right? Because it takes so long for an artisan to actually finish a meter of, of textile. Mm-hmm. So that alone, people value, pe- people put value to it and um, they're willing to pay for it, especially when they're invested in understanding um, the process behind the product and invested in ensuring that 
the culture is, you know, preserved and sustained. I see. And, you know, I was going to ask earlier on, and it just occurred to me, I mean, the, like in any entrepreneur, uh, it, what you're doing was quite overwhelming, as I can see, because it was not just the fabric. It was, you know, it, the, the backward integration is you have to teach the community. You had to put together funds. You had to get to put together clients. I'm sure there were instances that uh, you also wanted to quit doing this one and say, I'm just going to do whatever my parents told me to do. I'm just going to do textile again. Was, did there ever come a point for you? You said, okay, wag na, masyado mahirap. Oh yeah, I feel like that occurs to me every day, especially when it gets really exhausting. Um, but I think I was so close to giving it up during the pandemic um, in 2021. Uh, I feel like because it was it was very tough, and I fe- felt like there was so much decision fatigue because every small and big business affected so many people's lives, and I like I couldn't. I, at that time, I felt like I couldn't handle the pressure anymore. And I was so close to, yeah, to just saying, okay, like, you know, I'm going to quit. I think I've done my part here and I, I want to move on to something different. Um, but yeah, I'm still here. We're still here. Yeah. And like in the pandemic, what actually happens for many of us is that, you know, it was just another pain point that we had to solve. And actually sometimes out of desperation is an inspiration to do something different or something new, which actually changes the course of your business. Uh, that happened to us in Mercato. What happened to you in Antin? I know that the pandemic also gave you a new business model or a new perspective on the way to conduct Antin's business. Is that right? Yes, we had to rethink the way we were working because um, I think we were banking on retail and retail distribution a lot the past years. And I think we, not that, not that we lost track, but um, during the pandemic, no one was buying fabrics or clothes, right? So, like, um, how do we reposition the business in a way where it will still be able to create impact in their communities? I think what was just very strong throughout the pandemic is we anchored ourselves back on our values and on our why, right? Like, why is Antil Antil? And why? what is the value of our work? Why are we here? So, what helped? Me personally was having conversations with our artisans and our partners. And I think putting, just accepting the fact that we had very limited resources then and, um, what, with the resources we have available, what can we do? Um, how can we still create impact? And we had to put a pause to profit because obviously that's not something that, you know, was, I guess, feasible to 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 make it happen at the time because it was just really a struggle um but we had to like keep the work going and so they expressed the artisans expressed that they want to be able to weave tradition and technology they don't want to be left behind and everyone was becoming online sellers but they couldn't sell in shopee or in lazada and so they're looking for a platform where they can sell their fabrics and so our biggest pivot in um during the pandemic was launching the very first online community fabric store. So we're the first online store in the Philippines that sells Filipino textiles. And it was amazing. It really gave such a huge sense of ownership among the artisans. They were so proud to see their beautiful fabrics on a website. And it worked. Like a lot of the diaspora community in the US and Australia in the UK we're now buying fabrics because it's accessible and they were transforming it into different things. 
And we're going to share that in just a bit. We're going to share uh, the two websites of Antil over here, which I'm sure that the, the viewers and also the listeners can, can appreciate. Uh, but before that, one more thing. Um, when you compare startups, again, and social enterprises to a startup, they have what you call uh, venture capitalists, people who invest in the startup so they're able to scale. Now, when it comes to social enterprises, are you also on the lookout to secure equivalent sorts of venture capitalists to scale a social enterprise? Or do social enterprises look at it in a different way? They just use internal funds to gen to they just use internal funds to, to grow the business and, and keep it at that pace. Yeah, there are avenues where we're able to raise capital through VCs and impact investors also. Um, in 2022, I attended a, an accelerator program at the Santa Clara Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship. And this is what actually prepared us to, you know, um, prepare a pitch deck, prepare a portfolio and, and be able to network with potential investors. Um, and, and there are, there are a lot of, um, organizations, institu- institutions that invest in social entre- entrepreneurs or social enterprises. On top of profit, they do look at profit. They do look at scalability of the business, scalability of impact, but they also look at impact metrics. Um, they look at how you're able to measure positive impact and, um, they want to make sure that, you know, your, your business model is effective in addressing the social issue you identified. What, what exactly are, are sort of impact metrics so people can, especially those who are aspiring social entrepreneurs can understand? Right. So every social enterprise would have to have different um, impact metrics depending on what they want to address or where they want to create change. So, for example, for us, it's in terms of the income of the weaver. So we want to be able to increase the income of the weaver. So that's one metric we look at. Um, if there is an increase in income, then there's also an increase in productivity. So we also look at um, increase in productivity, like what is their production capacity? Are they able to, you know, weave a thousand meters per month right now versus 200 in the past? So we look at that as well because that also determines scalability. Um, we also look at the savings. So the level of savings of the artisans because we have a sa- financial literacy and savings program in Anthill. Um, and then in the past years, we look at circularity. We've been very um, committed in our circularity programs also. So we look at how much income they earn from waste. And then we also look at how much kilos of waste we have upcycled. Mm. Um, yeah, How much kilos of waste we've um, saved from uh, getting into the dump site. Have you brought in any impact investors so far? I'm sure there are some people who are looking at, at Antil right now. Oh, thank you. Um, we've had quite a number of calls and we were so close. We were actually on the round of getting, of going through a due diligence phase in 2020, but then sadly the pandemic happened. Um, and then now we're, tra- we're on a recovery stage. So we're trying to hit our, um, profit milestones again. And then if we're able to hit that, then we're going to be back in these calls. Um, but it takes a while and I think. I think through the years, I've also learned that, you know, um, and as much as it's important to scale your business so you can scale your impact, it doesn't necessarily mean um, profit. 
It could also mean growing internally. It could also mean scaling across and scaling in different ways. Got that. Uh, thank, thank you so much for sharing with us, Anya. And right now, I want to share with the listeners and the viewers as well uh, the two different websites which they actually came up with. What's the, what was the first one here, Anna? Is it Until Markets? Is that right? Yes, Until okay. Markets. So um, one of the interesting feature um, in our markets is you can actually um, customize. So this you is the can first choose to... This is the first website. That you yes. And, and yeah, so yeah, I'm sorry to step back, but tell us a bit more about oh, what the... Well, it's until uh, antilmarkets.com. The purpose of the website is it's not just about us, right? Is it an e-commerce site? Yes, it's an e-commerce site. So you'll see all of our um, ready-to-wear pieces, collaborations. Um, yeah, so every we have for men, for women, for gifts. But when you go to the shop page, also there's a custom link. So for those who want to have something made to measure, or if they have a design in mind, uh, they can actually just plug in their measurements on the custom page. We also have a video that a video t- tutorial of how you're able to take your measurements yourself. Um, and we do that quite a lot. We do a lot of made-to-measure orders. Um, but on top of that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of ready-to-wear available also. In fact, we're gearing up for one of the biggest fairs in the Philippines, which is Artifino, coming up towards the end of of the month. So I hope you don't mind me plugging and yeah, promoting that. Yeah, um, yes. yeah, so we're going to be at the 5th Rockwell um, on August 24 until the 27th with over 150 brands of um, different Filipino local brands uh, really pushing for local craftsmanship. So from accessories, clothing, furniture, everything under the sun, really. Um, and you'll get the chance to try on the clothes and get the feel of the fabrics and, yeah, put a weave in your closet. So, um, Bayanihan, this one is um, a recent collaboration with Spark Project, which is a crowdfunding platform in the Philippines. Uh, this was a grant. Uh, this was a pro- program funded by the Australian Awards. Uh, we just, again... Again, going back to the artisans expressing how they want to weave tradition and technology, we mm-hmm. supported the different artisans in pursuing alternative forms of livelihood. Um, and yeah, we closed this campaign last year, uh, sorry, last month, and they're able to, to raise funds for their businesses. So we're just helping more. I guess this, um, this is grow different businesses and become more entrepreneurial. Yes, with batch, correct. Yeah. Not that. What are the other interesting highlights that you want to bring about that you want to share with us about the page? Um, this one, if you check with collaborate with us, it shows the uh, it shows the um, the different um, business to business partners that we've had through the years. So the the banner above shows the upholstery of what we've done with Boast Coffee. Uh, uh, if you may, okay. if you can go up. So this these are actually their lounge shares. And they're all upholstered with Antel fabric. So we're able to do that. We're able to become your textile supplier. We also do, we also serve a lot of hospitality partners. So recently, um, we did the uniforms for Ascot Nakati. Uh, these ones are aprons for a cafe in Brisbane, Australia. We do a lot of, 
Yeah, so we've done a couple of aprons. Um, yeah, another one is for a bar in LA. Um, so yeah, we do work a lot with the diaspora community. We've been getting a lot of support from um, brands in the US, Australia, and in the UK. So yeah, we also feature our zero waste partnerships. Um, a lot of there's, for example, like Atmosphere Resorts in um, Dumaguete used our zero-waste fabrics for their pillowcases. We also collaborated in the past with Bio, and we um, upcycled older textile waste, and we rewove them into new fabrics, which they used in their designs. Very nice. So this anthillmarkets.com, for those who want to be able to support our local uh, artisans or get their custom-made support uh, and develop customized clothes for yourself or get RTW, you can drop by anthillmarkets.com. But you also have anthillfabrics.com. Uh, yes. Now, this is the site, website that you developed in the midst of the pandemic, right? Referring back to your discussion in the earlier portion of this podcast. Tell us a bit more about anthillfabrics.com. Correct. So um, with Anthill Fabrics, it's just really a fabric store. So we want to grow our fabric market among designers, among interior interior designers, fashion designers, um, those who are into crafts or textile collectors or hobbyists. So in this uh, website, if you go to the shop page, um, all our fabrics are categorized per region. So you see Luzon weaves, Visayas weaves, um, everything. And we do video consultations for those who want to learn more about our textiles and how and where to use them. Um, in During the pandemic, actually, Jollibee Europe, used our fabrics and found our site, found an Antel Fabrics, um, and used our fabrics for uh, the Jollibee stores, for the tables in the Jollibee stores. So we offer a lot of craft kits also. We are we doing, we're doing a, a workshop, online workshops on how you can learn how to weave. Um, but what also is very unique with Antel is we can do customized fabric. So if there's a particular brand who wants to have a certain pattern in their brand colors, we can do that as well. I want to show and we sell our swatch books also. <laughs> yeah. No, I was saying because like Mercato Central is supposed to represent, you know, Filipino street food and we may be Yeah, your uniform your aprons should be should have until weaves. Yeah, until weaves or maybe from the table the tabletops or whatever else that we can put. Uh, now it's, yeah. giving some ideas. it's giving some ideas to the other entrepreneurs in the FMB or hospitality space where they can actually use some of these fashions uh, in in their in their own uh, stores. Um, you know, I'm, I'm surprised we're actually we're close to an hour, and it's been a very very interesting discussion. No? But then, can I just ask you uh, very briefly um, in in the in that social enterprise space, especially the one that you're in, are there other opportunities that you're seeing for for more social entrepreneurs to enter? Uh, opportunities there that you know you, you've seen, but you're not particularly going to take advantage of because you're busy with until are there are there spaces that you see that you know oh, this is this is great for social enterprise for social entrepreneurs who got the time and the passion to do to do this. I think we're never gonna run out of social issues, especially in this country. So there is a lot to solve. Um, particularly, I think we need more social entrepreneurs so we can push for social procurement to become a law. Um, people always have a misconception if you're a social entrepreneur, if you're a social enterprise, 
you're not going to be able to to grow or you're not going to be able to be to scale or to to get good profit or get good income but on the contrary if if we're able to push for social procurement imagine all the um private and public offices allotting budgets to in- reinvest in social enterprises um instead of buying from china like corporate giveaways uniforms and whatnot um and investing that in social enterprises so there is a market out there um there are a lot of opportunities out there um and there's a lot of social issues we can still creatively solve not necessarily in the fashion sector it could be in the food sector it could be in the environment um it could be in um you know any it could be in yeah any other space so yeah there are definitely a lot of opportunities out there got that and, and just to be clear what do you mean by social procurement right um yeah sorry it's a jargon i threw out so um for example it, private organizations and public institutions like government offices for example they do have procurement requirements so right they have office supplies or they need office supplies or they need corporate giveaways they need uniforms um even private uh in- institutions that say um hotels resorts or um fmcgs they do have needs for volume procurement and most of these like gift packs or or vip gifts whatever um and in the past like a lot of these um requirements are invested in buying from china for example they buy um all those coffee mugs for for corporate giveaways or umbrellas or um usb ports or keychains um a lot of this are outsourced outside the country but if we're able to push for a social procurement bill then this will actually require for businesses to um invest in social enterprises and procure from social en- enterprises and given this we're reinvesting in the local economy and in the local communities Anya Lim of Antil again if you want to visit uh if you want to help out and support our indigenous weavers again please visit antilmarkets.com and of course uh, antilfabrics.com uh they also have right now a fabric gallery which has become a driving force for positive change in the lives of indigenous communities we invite you to please support the growth of antil and our indigenous consumers again uh this has been RJ Ledesma for the RJ Ledesma podcast guys Thanks so much. We will see you in the next RJ Ledesma podcast. The opinions of podcast creators, hosts, and guests are not necessarily reflective of the official stance of the Pod Network Entertainment, its hosts, or other network programs. The content created by the people behind the podcast is personal and not meant to harm any religion, ethnicity, group, organization, company, or individual. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.